I was nearly 25 when I realized Julia Roberts was actually the villain in my best friend's wedding. Now we're at the 25th anniversary of the film's release from June 20th, 1997. I'm not sure if that was due to the power of Julia Roberts or all the telenovelas I was raised on that convinced me quite literally all was fair in Love and War. As the final film in our wedding series, it also falls into the rom-com family, so I'll be deep diving into why this is a perfect wedding movie and also what's wrong with every character in this film. Except for George, he's perfect. Michael and Julianne have been best friends for years. The one constant thing in my life is that he'll always be there. But they were never more than that. Call me, four in the morning, whatever, we gotta talk. Until he popped the question. I called because I met someone. To someone else. Well. We're getting married. He was in love with me every day for nine years. Me! <laughs> I can see why. Look, she has known him for what, like five seconds? I can't lose him, George. I'm a busy girl. I've got four days to break up a wedding and steal the bride's fellow. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> You know, I've never had a sister. All I've heard is, is Julianne this and Julianne that. Michael and I were a wrong fit right from the start. He said that too. George, she's toast. The only fear she really has is you. So this means that I have four days to make you my new best friend and be my maid of honor. What? Why not? You're practically the best man anyway. I just asked myself, what would Lucy Ricardo do in this situation? Who's that guy? I told him, George, <laughs> if we're engaged, well, I'd be ashamed of it, right? Something wrong. It's just a big surprise. We thought you were a lesbian. Oh! I know. We have to talk about George. You're jealous? Crazy jealous. Personally, I think Mr. Michael's marrying the wrong girl. Just tell him you love him. I, I, I realize this comes at a very inopportune time. Marry me. TriStar Pictures presents I'm the bad guy A story about finding the love of your life Do you really love him? And deciding Or is this just about winning? What to do about it I trusted you Just tell me what Why did you trust me? No, why did you pretend to be my friend? Julia Roberts oh. Dermot Mulroney And Cameron Diaz Lovely together. My best friend's wedding. Michael! That's our maid of honor. She's from New York. Oh. Welcome to another episode of No One's Guilty Pleasure Podcast, a podcast where no one feels guilty about what gives them pleasure. As I said earlier, my best friend's wedding meets perfectly at the intersection of weddings and rom-coms, two things we all love so much. I'm going to run you through the movie start to finish in potentially exasperating detail, highlighting everything that's gone wrong in this film, but I fall for it time and time again. Today, we're doing a solo Ruby pod, so if you hate it, let me know. If you love it, let me know. You'd think the only child in me would relish in having this little Carrie Bradshaw monologue going on, but number one, I can't stand sex in the city, and secondly... I'm still deeply concerned that being left alone with my thoughts is going to give you guys enough evidence that I'm off the deep end and I'll lose all power. Since I have no guests this week, I'm also going to regale you at the end with my own answers to my wedding quickfire, as well as reveal my personal pleasure points. 
So this movie centers on, like we said, our little holy trinity of Julie Roberts, Cameron Diaz, and Dermot Mulroney. Um, they've definitely sprung many an admiration and crush for all of us who've continued to watch them in tons of other movies and shows. And I think for most of us, it started here. And by perfect love triangle, I mean three equally charming actors who make these three emotionally unstable, fragile, ego trashed humans seem mildly tolerable. I first saw this movie probably when it came out and tiny six-year-old me had no business watching it. Um, But as someone who grew up in a huge family with everybody that was a bit older, and I was also eerily quiet and serious for my age, I think I was probably allowed to tag along to everything. I probably saw this with my mom and my cousin and just was like excited about Julia Roberts. And I just saw her big ass smile and charm and said, oh yeah, she's definitely the hero. There's no way she's doing anything wrong. I'd yet to enter my Cameron Diaz stardom, so at the time she was nothing to me. And Dermot Mulroney was vaguely attractive enough, even though he wasn't Zach Morris from Saved by the Bell. Remember, we're about six months from me learning about Leo and the handprint on the steamy car, so, you know, with Dermot, I said, he'll do. Now 31-year-old me watching this movie... Wow, 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 Bethany, wow, at the entire situation. The only thing that hasn't changed for me in a quarter of a century is relating to George in this scenario and finding him the most sensible. But I'm getting ahead of myself. And as Nobel laureate Hilary Duff once sang, let's go back, back to the beginning. The movie opens with an unhinged musical number featuring literally nobody from the movie singing a vaguely Nexium level devoted song to the concept of belonging to men. Enough said. I will say though, we should bring back unrelated musical videos at the beginning of films, but that they be more in line with our societal values today. Something along the lines of I'll pretend to be with a man for a six figure income, 10 years and 50% for the rest of time, and then move to a modest house in Miami and live with my three best friends. When the actual movie begins, we learn Julia Roberts, who plays Jules, the food critic, is at dinner with her editor, George, played by legendary Rupert Everett, who we love. This was like, food critic was that kind of cool movie job. You know, we get all the rom-com jobs of like journalists and advertising agents and food critic. I'm very kind of like low-key okay, doesn't exist anymore because Yelp has changed my life. The only time it's ever steered me wrong was in Denver recently, because I guess nobody there has any sort of discerning palate because literally every restaurant had four points to five stars or higher. So Jules interrupts her meal um, with, at the time, an extremely advanced looking cell phone. And here's a message from her college best friend, Michael. This is Dermot Mulroney. And that line of him saying like, it's Michael, it's been months, huh? For whatever reason has like, been seared into at the time my barely forming frontal cortex and then has continued on for another 25 years. So we get the story, the background story about Jules and Michael um, so that we learn about it. And basically they're what us millennials, well, us millennials speaking, I don't think I have any Gen Z listeners, what we call the talking stage of a relationship. So they quote, we're basically talking for a month, And I would have said that they were in a situationship, but it feels like they're still in a situationship for this next nine years. Um, Basically, she dumps him after the first month because he likes her, because that's what 
sensible women do when men are actually forthright and interested. We self-sabotage straight away and then seek unavailable garbage men. We also get the casual like Brown University drop that they went to school. So we know that they're smart, but not too pretentious. But then I'm like, Michael went to Brown and now he's per the movie, a low paid sports writer. And so I'm just like, shout out to the student loans. Like is his future father-in-law paying those off? Like what's going on over there? So we find out like Michael and Jules stayed friends. Jules gives like a long monologue about going through loss together and traveling the world and confining each other. And so it's kind of the conveying the situation ship or the message that it's like all the perks of a relationship without the romance. And then we find out about the marriage pact, which has traumatized many a person of the millennial and Gen Z generations when they hear that if they're both single by 28, they're getting married. That's just like a random number, not 25, not 30, but 28. Um, Approximately 80% of us at 28 were either in no position for marriage or had no interest in such a situation. Same. The joke's on her, though, because she thinks he's calling because she's about to turn 28 and bring up the pact. And so she kind of beats him to the punch and brings it up. And he literally is now going to be the most typical man on the planet for the entirety of this movie. So buckle up, Space Invaders. We're about to ride into the Milky Way of the male ego for about 90 minutes. I apologize in advance. So she calls him back. He bring, She brings up the pact and he literally shoots her down immediately and says that he met someone. So again, he's 28. The fiance is 20 with a billionaire father. And he tells Jules on a Wednesday, a Wednesday that the wedding is on Sunday. I just want that to formulate in your brains that you're getting the news that your supposed best friend is telling you, Oh, I'm so bad at simple math. I believe it's, three days, Saturday, Friday, four days before the wedding. My dad would be so happy to see I'm so bad at math. Four days before your wedding day that you're getting married. And like, of course it was all like, you know, it was a rush, blah, blah. But we see the events that this wedding has. And he didn't tell her all of this any sooner than that Wednesday before. And this is where there's a little truth because I'm sure plenty of women out there are convinced they have platonic male best friends who are just so thoughtful and so detail oriented. I would never do that to you. I have approximately three straight male friends who would all be this forgetful. And it's not because they're not my friends and they don't care about me, but that's exactly what dudes are like. Even the gays are too. I'm an ambassador and can speak on their behalf they don't understand men just don't get details. And so the only time that they get details is when their partners encourage them to get their shit together, which of course we're going to get into all the dynamics. That is the Jules, Michael, Kimmy situation, because that's hello, the movie. So now we're getting to the reason why we, me, Ruby, and you, my few friends that have bamboozled into listening to me orate this long are here. The wedding. This is a true wedding movie because the bulk of it just takes place in all of the wedding activities. Thanks to the billionaire media conglomerate family, we are blessed with a four-day nuptial affair. So Thursday through Sunday, it's all wedding events. And honestly, 
I think if you insist on having multiple events related to a wedding, this is the best way to do it. Don't make me commit four to five weekends within one calendar year to keep congratulating you on getting married. Pick one spot where I can get a deal, you know, stay three nights. The fourth one is free. Some little all-inclusive wristband where I just get all access to everything and just pay one check. And then I can send you on your merry way and we just keep it moving to the next couple. I'm am I really celebrating you once a month from March, November in this economy. We're doing another season of recession. We're going into a recession again, folks. I can't be doing all of that. All right, I digress. So as I said, the stray male friend gives his friend an 18 hour notice to show up. First of all, I mildly take back what I said about that being typical. As I said, I'm just kind of concerned about the bonds Michael has socially in that Jules may be his only friend outside of his family. And he waited 18 hours before the wedding weekend to tell her. We don't really see him have any other friends in the movie. Like there's a scene where it's like presumably a bachelor-esque event. Also notably no bachelor bachelorette party. That could have been useful in these weird dynamics. But both of them, both Michael and Kimmy, don't seem to have a lot of friends, period, based on their bridal parties are just both like distant relatives. Um, So as I said, he had like a little male gathering and it was literally like his dad, the future father-in-law, some co-workers and um, his little brother. So again, if she's his only friend, one concerning, secondly, why didn't he tell her also did like, this is such a fancy family. There were no save the dates. There was no formal invitation. I mean, I'm registered on like five websites to RSVP to your guys's weddings. Like how did she not get any of this information? And then I'm almost like, do we think he almost didn't invite her? And so I'm going to be posting a poll about that. And you will be answering. If you think that because Kimmy definitely knew what was up, she probably was like, on the fence about letting him invite her or he was on the fence about inviting her because he knew it would rile this stuff up. So again, I have gone on a whole tangent about the wedding concepts to say he's letting her know he's getting married. And we begin with like whatever term Glennon Doyle would use about toxic men. Like, I don't think it's a love bomb or a gaslight or a breadcrumb, but it's something wrong. If you know the word, once I start describing it, please let me know. After giving her an 18-hour notice, he guilts and lures her with, if you don't hold my hand through this, I'm never going to make it. Again, where are his other social bonds? Why are you not excited? Why do you need your hand held to get married to what you would think would be the love of your life? It's someone you're getting married to. Um, It's the first of many, many examples in which I, a scholar with a whole ass master's degree, am going to point out how much Michael does not want to marry Kimmy. That is the thesis statement of this film. He does not want to marry her. So back to Jules. Again, tiny six-year-old Ruby did not realize she was the villain when she literally headed to the airport and yelled that she was a busy girl with four days to break up a wedding, steal the bride's fella because Julia's Georgia had to jump out and hasn't a clue how to do it. And you know what? Because she's Julia Fiona Roberts. That's why. And yes, her middle name is Fiona, like the princess in Shrek, voiced by Cameron Diaz. That's called the universe at work. 
So Michael and Kimmy pick up Jules at the airport. And now I'm going to sound like an abuelita when I say, like, remember when people could go get their loved ones at the gate of the airport? Only because my mom and I used to like to wave at people that weren't waving back at us at the airport at the gate. And my dad used to get really upset about it. So hashtag memories. Also, in last week's episode about the wedding planner, I kind of lamented about how like movies and shows don't really write specificity anymore. Like, you know, you always want that movie that you're going to quote and say like the chaotic thing in it. And I love when Kimmy says straight out the gate, my best friend shattered her hip line dancing and abling over spring break. Like we don't get stories like that anymore. She's basically explaining why she needs Julia Roberts to be her maid of honor, even though they've never met until that moment, which again, you didn't have another friend. And I'm not saying like, I'm not out here saying you have to have like 500 friends. I know any of you listening who know me well are like, Ruby's a fake ass Libra. She has like all these little clusters of friends. Again, as Mindy Kelling said, best friend is not a person. It's a tear. I love you all equally. But so she didn't have like, I understand some people only like want the handful of friends, but like, again, a handful, that's five. If you have them all. So where are the other four? Anyways, instance number two, when I'm like, Michael is not trying to marry Kimmy because Julia's the maid of honor, Jules is the maid of honor. She's getting a dress fitting at the very last minute, which seems very chaotic for this wedding planning. And he, you know, accidentally walks in on her in her underwear in the dressing room. And when she tries to cover up, he literally says, I've seen you a lot more naked than that, which is a fact. But then he follows it up with, you look really good without your clothes on. Excuse? If the future Mr. Ruby Langsley said that to anyone, anyone, he would be in the river with cement blocks tied around his feet. Get out of town. That is not acceptable. Not acceptable at all. Little Ruby also didn't appreciate, though, what a formidable adversary Jules had in Kimmy. Like little me thought that, you know, Cameron's character was just kind of like a silly blonde and like very naive, but she's, she's got tools. Like she, you know, whatever in her shed or belt or whatever, she knows some shit because she and Jules have like this little competition about who knows more about Michael's flaws. And then Kimmy gives us the true definition of unhinged before we all began overusing it last year. She pulls the emergency button on the elevator, which I could never because constricted spaces and drops, death drops that aren't on RuPaul's Drag Race are not acceptable. And she literally comes up to Jules' face and is like, he's got you on a pedestal and me in his arms. She's already let her know that she has won. And so not to be outdone, Jules finds out things that Kimmy doesn't like, including karaoke bars, and then sabotages Kimmy into having to sing karaoke. And she also kind of does a lot of like inside jokes with Michael that Kimmy can't participate in, which is rude as fuck. But also Michael is the worst because he should be bridging the gap for her. Like, oh, this story is from this or this joke is because of that. So again, men. The end. One word story, men. Period. And as we continue with kind of the sabotaging moves, um, you know, Jules is kind of giving like Janice Ian and Regina George 
precursors because she like just keeps trying to like launch all these attacks and you know Kimmy just thrives regardless but this one was kind of equal part sabotage and supportive because she kind of hatches a plan with Kimmy to get Michael to quit his sports writer job and work for the dad you know financial stability and not moving around all the time and at this point I was just like how much shit can they cram into four days of life like aren't they doing the wedding stuff like how do they have time to be going to random bars like Everyone listening to this knows that I like to go to bed at 9.30. If you would like me to stay up past 10, I need many breaks in between. Naps, additional coffees. Like, how are they doing all of this and and not in a bad mood? Because I would just be in the worst mood. And the answer is a fuck ton because I forgot how much more there was to come as well. But basically, Michael sees through the plan, super offended. And honestly, though, like... Kimmy's going to quit school for him, which dumb move on her part. The least he could do is like work a good job and give her a stable life because it's called compromise. I'm single and I know that. Anyway, Kimmy broke down right away and was remorseful. And I was just like, I roll. (laughs) So Jules is like pissed and calls George saying she was double crossed, which was beyond. And George the only sane person in this film who deserved so much better than he was given, same for Rupert Everett, has to intervene. And so he surprises her in Chicago. He's trying to talk her off the ledge. And the first thing he does, which, listen up, this is a real ass friend, is like he is straight up with her from the jump. And he says, do you actually love him or is this just about winning? Jules is dumb as rocks and she says she loves him, even though she literally spent nearly a decade giving the most minimal parts of herself to this man. And then once he's unavailable, she just suddenly is like, oh no, he's the love of my life. So George convinced her to confess her love to him. And instead her amygdala activates and she resorts to lying and saying that George is her fiance. George, the gay British man is her fiance and her editor, all sorts of conflicts of interest. So he plays along begrudgingly um, and in what is definitely everyone's favorite part of the movie. If you've watched this movie, we know that we're coming to the magical music moment of the wedding movie. And it's when he's meeting the family, they're dining somewhere that seems like a chicer cousin of a red lobster. And he tells a story about someone who's unwell mentally thinking they're Dionne Warwick and breaks out into a say, I say a little prayer by her. So take a step back right now, admit that this is movie is the reason, you know, that whole song. My family is that family as well, where we will sing and clap to anything. So this was highly relatable. And so, you know, everybody feels good. You're singing along. I'm singing along. And honestly, the Dion Warwick reference is timely today, too, because she's an icon on Twitter. So if you haven't seen it, follow her immediately. She's doing the Lord's work, y'all. And of course, witnessing someone having very fake but very devoted feelings for Jules makes Michael jealous. We can argue that he's jealous kind of in like that platonic way that we sometimes get when we realize we're not the number one person in our friends' lives. You know, sometimes we're both single And then once they have somebody new, we're like, oh, they're just, you know, a little bit wrapped up. But also based on the numerous displays of disloyalty he's already shown Kimmy, I also just choose to believe it's another red flag planted on this race course of love. 
And then the sketchiness between Michael and Jules culminates in that scene. They're like on a, I don't know if it's a ferry boat or like a harbor cruise, what have you, they're together. And he's literally begging her to say that she loves him in order to get him out of this wedding. Cause he's like, yeah, Kimmy told me that like, if you love someone, you should say it, you know? And he's just like lingering there and like Jules knows what he's trying to say. And she's like, I'm not going to do it. So they're both just standing there, not confessing anything. And I wondered if Taylor Swift was watching this movie when she wrote speak now fleeting thought, I'm going to keep it moving, but it was just a thought I had because it was giving the same storyline. But the problem with this, and we kind of talked about this last week also with the wedding planner with Matthew McConaughey's character is like, he's displacing any like effort to be accountable and speak his mind about his doubts. And he's just trying to cast it upon jewels. Like he's trying to get the woman to do the thing so that he can be like, oh, she told me first. And then I realized it. Or even if she said something and he rejected her, it's like not his fault anymore. And he doesn't have to be accountable for it. And, you know, the wedding was like a little too rushed anyway. So maybe there weren't save the dates or invites because they were still like getting fitted for suits the day before the ceremony. The couple hadn't chosen a wedding song. It was just kind of all a little, a little too fast and loose for like what seemed to be quite a stately formal gathering. And now it's the part that's my least favorite of the movie. Like I get the secondhand anxiety, secondhand anxiety watching this scene is like they rehashed the whole like trying to get Michael to switch jobs, but then she just takes it a little too far. So Jules uses Kimmy's dad's like email to impersonate him, first of all, and reach out to Michael's boss to convince the boss to fire Michael so that Michael can go work for the dad. The same job he already rejected. And so like the level of irreparable damage that is, like if it was anyone else besides Julie Roberts, this wouldn't have landed. I was trying to do like a little research about this movie and see if there was anything I didn't already know about this movie. And apparently Sarah Jessica Parker was like one of the options to play this role. If she had done this, we would have hated her. She does not have the same charm to like win us over the way Julia does. Like Julia Roberts is great at high stakes energy. If y'all haven't seen Mystic Pizza, when she thinks her crush is on a date with another girl and dumps like an entire truck of rotten fish in his car. And then she finds out it was just his sister. Like hit pause now, go to YouTube. Julie Roberts, Mystic Pizza, I don't know, Fish Car. I don't fucking know. Go find it, watch that, and then come back to me because that is cinema verite at its peak. So, you know, the email thing goes out the night before the wedding. It's wedding day. Michael's boss, like, warns him of what he thinks that the dad is trying to do. So Michael calls, I think Michael calls Kimmy and like calls off the wedding, but like both of those little spineless bitches did not tell their families. So they called it off in their heads to each other, but like, there's a whole ass brunch happening in this big house, probably Kimmy's family's house. I don't know. They're at the venue. Maybe everyone's none the wiser. And he's like told Jules what happened. And so she's like running back and forth playing telephone between them. And her desperation is just like at its peak where she's just like, trying to convince both of them that the other one doesn't want to get married, even though they're both saying they still want to get married. It's hot mess express. 
And so once she realized like she has no other cards left to play, she finally hit some of the confession. And I never noticed before that what she says is like, choose me, marry me, let me make you happy. And I now see that someone in the Shondaland sphere stole that to create Meredith's pick me, choose me, love me speech, which also is just as bad as this one. Like it gets like played on every kind of like inspo love account on social media but like what they don't show you on the social media is like after meredith does that speech mcdreamy i think literally rejects her and is like nah he's good also i just can't with mcdreamy and like she was always fighting for a man who literally didn't tell her that he was married until his wife showed up so i don't really know where we stand on him but also addison montgomery addison forbes montgomery shepherd no better entrance on television except when Derek actually like I think two seasons later comes because like that was the end of season one and then season three at some point he's like going to apologize to Addison about something and she has like this little sad face on and then Mark walks out of the shower and that's where he gets like his McSteamy title and then McDreamy is mad we'll do an episode one day about either why McDreamy sucks or why McSteamy is number one but it's going to be something like that. And that's not what today is about. Today is about the fact that Jules still can't accept she didn't win because she does that speech and kisses Michael. And then Kimmy sees them and he literally goes running after Kimmy. He has made his choice girl. And George says it too, because he's like, who's chasing you? And it's literally nobody because Michael is chasing Kimmy. Jules is chasing Michael. And even George isn't chasing her because she had to call George all over again because he flew back to New York she had to call him so like an idiot you know she finds him admits about the email and michael like still toxic as ever says thanks for loving me that much like he's mad for a minute i'm not saying he wasn't mad but then he says thanks for loving me that much and that's not what love is folks i'm just gonna put that one out there and we get like a little confrontation between kimmy and jules but then they resolve it blah 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 And then Kimmy and Michael just get married because they'd rather do that and get divorced later than just kind of deal with the gossip right now of like a postponement or cancellation because that's what people do. And Jules does her maid of honor speech. I can't believe they still let her fucking do it. But I mean, she did like apologize to everybody. But, you know, you need time to heal all wounds. And so she starts her speech with, I had a dream some psychopath was trying to break the two of you up. And to that, I say, too soon, sis. And then as a, quote, gift, she gives them her and Michael's song, which is The Way You Look Tonight, as their first dance. And to me, that seems like a final bitch move on her part, because, like, I'm sure, let's go with generous. But no, she's like, this was my song, and I'm handing it to you. Again, like a possessive, like, he was my man, and I'm handing it. And it's like, first of all, he was never your man, so calm down calm down. And then secondly, that's weird. It's just kind of odd. And then they're like leaving the reception early, you know, like they're doing that, like couples, people don't really do this anymore. I don't think not that I see where like the couple is supposed to like leave the wedding before everyone else that you do like the, I don't know how to say it in English, la despedida, the goodbye, I guess. And so they do that. And then 
as they're like going, disappearing in the distance, he literally turned around and came back and hugged her. And I was just like, I kind of get it. Like, again, it's supposed to be platonic, but like, I just still did not care for whatever that symbolic commentary was. It just, it just continued to be too much. And then at the end, we get this little surprise from George where he's at the reception and dances with her. And honestly, he deserved way better than the scraps that were given to him in this film. Like he had the A1 comedy parts because like I loved her leaving her voicemails and he was like in his pretentious dinner party moments, but he deserved a lot. And like shout out to George's finances because that man flew from New York to Chicago twice in like 36 hours. But I've also heard that there was an alternate ending or the original ending was like John Corbett, who we know from like Sex and the City and my fat Greek wedding. Like he shows up at the end and it's like presumed that he's going to be the new lover, but apparently people hated that ending. So we get this one with Rupert Everett. And yeah, what did this movie teach us? Pretty much they're all terrible people. So maybe my six to 24 year old self was right in not villainizing Julia Roberts because like how badly did Michael and Kimmy actually want each other more than they wanted to keep up appearances. They made a rash mistake and they knew that. So, you know, it's about perspective y'all with that. I'm going to kind of go through my rom-com rubric myself and give you guys my feedback does the couple end up together or stay together is what we usually say. Um, in this point, obviously, Michael and Kimmy are the couple. And of course, they do not stay together. I mean, they were absolutely mismatched from the beginning. They clearly had disparate life goals. And so the entirety of the film was just both of them. They clearly wanted to keep their lives like she wanted to stay in school. She wanted to stay rich. And he still wanted to like bum around writing and like doing all his like adventure you know, traveling for all of this stuff and literally neither of them, I mean, she bent and commit and compromise, but neither of them actually wanted to compromise for each other. So I don't know how that's going to work in the long run. Tangled long run. And then there's no sequel, but like, to me, the sequel that doesn't exist is it's like parallel to it's complicated with uh, Meryl Streep and Alec Baldwin. If you've seen that where I could see like, you know, 20 years later, like, he and Kimmy are clearly divorced like five years in and then they keep just, you know, doing the same thing they've been doing. And then there's a point where they actually try to be together, like maybe in their like early forties, but then, you know, they kind of like also just like anybody else, they can't change who they are. So they're not really meant to be together. And so then Jules can end up with kind of like a sweet, naive man who's better than what she deserves. And then Michael will just kick it alone as he should be. We always ask, was it a rom-com? So like, was it actually romantic? And did we actually laugh? And I would absolutely say this is a true romantic comedy. This is like one of my pantheon films for rom-coms. There's plenty of moments that made me laugh. I mean, basically every moment that Rupert Everett is on screen is like a gift to humanity. And just any kind of weird reference he made just killed me. And then also when Julia Roberts said that he flew to Chicago to fuck her, beyond too much and of course we had the romance as tragic as it was this trio of idiots um trying to mismanage their love for one another was you know 
about romance. Did I find it romantic? Not exactly, but that's what the intent was. Were there any unnecessary moments or storylines? Like I said before, the intervening with his job just took it too far. Like you do not F with people's money, like with their jobs and their careers, because that's just something that like messes with people's safety and not safety. That sounds ridiculous, but you know what I mean? Like messes with their livelihood. And so if anybody did that to me, it'd be over. I would kill them. Allegedly. Wardrobe. So we'll do a little bit of like, did we want the clothes then or now and how the wedding wardrobe was? Um, Julia was rocking like all these business sets and the baggy looks that are like very much back right now. It's not for me, but it is a vibe. And like, of course, she can pull off anything because she'll just have her big old smile and her big red curls. And we're just like, ugh, so charming. Um, I'm more of like her in Notting Hill era clothes. I'm much more into that. And the one thing I noticed that I loved um, that I would have never picked up on before is like the whole movie, everyone's wearing such bright colors or like light neutrals. And she's literally always in black. And so you like make sure that you're always like unconsciously focused on her. And like, she's unlike anybody else in the room, whether that's for better or for worse, but also like peak outfit was the morning of the wedding when she was like literally trying to like pull any remaining scraps. And she had two sets of sunglasses on. So like one on her eyes and one on her forehead. I just couldn't. Um, the wedding clothes, terrible. There's not much to say. Like her bridesmaid's dress was terrible. Um, I would like to say it was like intentional on Kimmy's part to like make her look bad because she's, you know, intimidated by her. But also Kimmy's dress was really fucked up. Like you only get to see it for a brief second. But the moment I saw it, I said, no. It wasn't even like cute for that era. It was just a terrible, terrible look. Um, what is my favorite era of rom-coms? So I had to think about this hard because obviously I'm making a whole podcast about everything I like. So there's got to be hundreds. But I think my favorite era is like this little moment between like 1997 through 2002, kind of like switching from 90s to 2000s is my favorite era, like big millennium girl. Obviously my best friend's wedding is in there. Like the teen types, like 10 things I've never been kissed. And she's all that where they're like teen movies, but also rom-coms. I love runaway bride, um, Notting Hill, even like the lesser known ones, like simply irresistible and the bachelor and summer catch. I really like, and then for my favorite wedding movies, I would say this up there as well. Um, I love Runaway Bride. I love The Wedding Singer. Um, and I love one called Bachelorette, which we'll definitely do one day. But that's like a completely dark and raunchy film that I love. Uh, time for my wedding quick fire with me. How exciting, how scintillating. Me asking me questions. So Ruby, what is your favorite and least favorite wedding tradition? Ruby, thank you for asking. Um, my favorite wedding tradition I'm like not a huge, like I've never been somebody people know I've never really pictured like my wedding or like gone to a lot. And like growing up, my family had really like small, simple weddings. And so I think to me, it's not so much a tradition, but the most important element to me would be having like 
my family there because as much as I gripe, I love them so much. Um, and I love celebrating things with them. And then, you know, not just like my family by blood, but also, you know, my closest friends. So anyone that's like special in my heart, I would love to have there. And then my least favorite wedding traditions, I guess, just like practices per se, like, the bouquet toss is a little done. Like it's a little tired. Like, please don't play single ladies by Beyonce and like make us all look pathetic. It's just so eye roll. Um, and then having like a ton of pre-events, like I was talking about earlier is like, you know, make a weekend out of it or like make a big time out of it in like one shebang, but like having 50 million types of little things that aren't necessary. It just seems like kind of like a waste of time mostly like for the same thing over and over again. Um, Ruby, what is a song that will get you on the dance floor? Well, Ruby, a song that would get me on the dance floor, that's like, a, I would say a common song at weddings is I love Dancing in the Moonlight. It's very classic, family friendly. Everyone likes it. Um, just gets you all groovy and in a nice little mood and everyone gets a little silly. So I like that. How to be a good wedding date. Um, I would definitely say just kind of like low, I don't want to say low expectations in a bad way, but just like, um, you know, like don't put too much pressure on the date. That's like there for the wedding, because like, they're probably wanting to talk to their friends or like, you know, participate in stuff. So like, just kind of be easygoing, like be able to make small talk with people at random, like loose acquaintances. Don't, don't tie yourself down to any weirdos because they're, they're always there at those weddings. Um, and just kind of be up for everything. So, you know, if you're the person you're accompanying likes dancing, just dance. If they just kind of like want to go explore the venue or just like focus on all the snacks, I don't know, like just kind of be flexible and up for anything. And then whether I prefer a seated dinner or heavy hors d'oeuvres, that's not how you say that. Hors d'oeuvres. Yeah. Jesus. Um, I prefer heavy hors d'oeuvres personally. Um, I don't like to be sitting around too much. A live band or DJ, I got to go old school, love a live band, love a little interaction, feeling like I'm at a concert, but I happen to be at a wedding. Uh, backyard wedding or destination wedding, truly for me wants to say both, but if I had to pick one, I would say backyard wedding. And then if I had to pick one between old, new, borrowed or blue, I would say blue. And finally, um, I know you're probably exhausted and maybe you've actually stopped listening. If you made this far, congratulations, you get a cookie. Um, these are my pleasure points personally. My favorite form of self-care would either have to be getting a massage, like any kind of you know beauty pampering or just a low-key day at the beach. My favorite cocktail I don't like too many complicated cocktails. So I would just say um, like a big, bold red wine, a glass of like a bold red wine is definitely big bodied red wine. I would say uh, is my thing. Um, dream or favorite travel locale. I don't have anything on my wonder list bucket right now. So it's going to be very predictable, but my favorite travel locale is always going to be Puerto Rico, no matter what. And, um, celebrity crush. So I've like 
you know, driven home the point about my first crushes. So I was just trying to think of somebody else that was like a hardcore celebrity crush for a time. And I would say like early aughts, early teen Ruby was very deeply into Chad Michael Murray. And I don't have regrets about that, but a little bit of regrets about that. But I also have to live my truth. So yeah, team Lucas Scott didn't appreciate Nathan for whom he was at the time. Sorry, everybody. It is what it is. You got to admit when you're the villain of your own story. And then finally, binge-worthy content at the moment is a tie because I have to do one tie. Um, If you're looking for like the dark, I mean, they're both dark comedies actually, but if you take yourself very seriously, you can watch Succession. Uh, Again, it's the only thing I'll talk about. Love rewatching it at random, any episode. Love every moment of it. Succession is that bitch. And then obviously also, um, if you aren't going to take yourself seriously, but you do have taste, RuPaul's Drag Race, just watch it. Watch it from the jump. Go into any season if you want to. You're going to have a good time. It's literally done in multiple countries right now. Watch an all-star season. It is such a good time. So many laughs and just like such an easy watch. I hope you enjoyed that. You know, I'll have a guest next week, but maybe we'll do a solo pod every once in a while and see how y'all like that. Thanks for listening. You can follow me at N-O-G-P underscore pod on Instagram. Uh, Share this with your friends who love nostalgic kind of podcasts or always think that they have a guilty pleasure about something and, you know, don't want to talk about it with other people. This is a safe space for you. And this is also a brave space to quote Dr. Wendy Osifo. And if you have any recommendations of movies or anything else you'd like me to do an episode on, please let me know as well. Bye.